Well, it, after a song like that, I'm ready to preach a whole different sermon on the, on the place and role of worship in the body. And uh, I know I often tell you that we can't trust our emotions, and that's true, and I'll stand by it. The reality is God gives us emotions, and we ought to feel. We ought to feel deeply, and when we sing songs of profound truth and recognize the reality that Christ has overcome in our place, if we're not filled with a godly emotion of recognizing what that is and the weight of it, then there is a disconnect within us that we need to address. It needs to hang heavy on our hearts to cause us to weep and rejoice even at the same time. But that's a sermon for another time. Today, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be specifically in the first half of uh, verse 17. But I'll read for you the passage that Paul writes to the Ephesian church about the armor of God. Ephesians 6, starting with verse 10. The apostle writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand... Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. May God add His blessing to the reading of His word. Father, as we open your word today, open our hearts, open our eyes, cause us to see with spiritual eyes what we cannot see with eyes of flesh. Remind us of your truth. Dig deep in our hearts, Lord. Plant that seed of faith that grows as we feed and water it with the truth of your word and your Holy Spirit. Lord, Cause us to walk away from this gathering time today stronger than before. Change us from the inside out. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus, who died in our place. Amen. Today, as you came in, you probably saw, maybe not, you probably saw a lot of bicycle riders out there, right? Anybody see one or two folks on bicycles? This time of year, when we have our, our annual Apple Cider Century bicycle tour and thousands of cyclists 
descend upon our little hamlet here, there are bicycles all over the road. And the vast majority of them, you will notice, the riders are wearing helmets. Why is that? The, the, the bicycle doesn't involve your head as much as your pedaling and your steering and your balance. Why aren't we wearing, you know, full body armor? See, if we get in an accident, that helmet is not going to protect the rest of the body. But the reason that we wear it, same thing with motorcycles, same thing in combat, the reason the helmet matters is because if you sustain a wound to the head, the rest isn't going to matter a whole lot. Protect the head. It's crucial. Because a wound to the head impacts your use of everything else. Head wounds can be fatal. We talk a lot about concussions in athletics, particularly in football. And it's not an accident that in football, we wear helmets. Unfortunately, sometimes that has caused people to be foolish and think that they could use the head as a weapon instead of protecting the head. That's not what it was made for. It's not how the game works. It's not what the helmet is for. It's to protect against the blows that you will naturally take. In our spiritual lives, God calls us to take up and put on a helmet to protect our head. As we see this passage, there's all these different elements of armor, and, and he starts with three pieces of the wardrobe of armor that we put on, the, the belt of truth, that, that foundation that holds things together, the breastplate of righteousness as we guard our heart and vital organs, and the shoes or the greaves that protect the feet and legs, the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And then he says, in addition to all these things, take up the shield, take the helmet, take the sword. These are additional pieces. And each of these things, I, I, I've said before, I, I think it's dangerous for us to, to overanalyze and, and spend an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out every detail of a metaphor because metaphors are not meant to cover every aspect of everything but to give us a picture that helps us understand. Nonetheless, metaphors are chosen for a reason, and God inspired Paul to use these for a reason. He did not give Paul the imagery of a helmet of salvation to protect your kneecaps. It's not it. It's not to protect your heart or your feet. It's not to use as an offensive weapon. It's to protect your head. With that in mind, our core reality for today is this. The devil cannot get into my head when my confidence is in Christ. The devil cannot get into my head when my confidence is in Christ. And as we sang that, that combination of songs of, of Waymaker and, and Overcome, I was overcome myself with the emotion of recognizing that it's not about me. My hope for salvation cannot be in myself, in my worthiness, 
in what I feel or understand in my human understanding, my hope for salvation is and must be in Christ alone. All the work was done by Him. He overcomes. He has overcome at the cross and gave evidence of that being raised for our justification. And He is overcoming now. And He shall overcome when He returns to set all things right, to eliminate sin, and to establish His literal rule on earth. And because Christ has overcome, we who are in Christ overcome by our discipline and our diligence? No. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And the word of our testimony is that combination, that connection between the reality of God as revealed to us in His word and the realities of everyday life as experienced day to day. This is where the word of our testimony, resting in the blood of the Lamb, causes us to overcome when we could not overcome in ourselves. The devil cannot get into my head when my confidence is in Christ. So as we work through this, hopefully this will become clear to you. This idea is closely related to last week's shield of faith. If you'll recall that uh, faith is aligning my thoughts with reality, you may remember that last week's core reality was that we overcome the enemy's attacks by knowing and choosing the truth of God's Word. That's what faith is. It's knowing what I know, even when I don't feel it. It's choosing truth in spite of my feelings, in spite of my circumstances, in spite of my expectations, as my mind begins to predict a future that I cannot know. Only God can know the future. And I begin to fill in the gaps in my understanding, almost inevitably, with negative emotions, half-truths, and mislaid beliefs. We live in a fallen world. We are influenced by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so it is our natural tendency as fallen people in a fallen world for negative emotions to dominate. Very seldom if you're a parent of a teenager and they break their curfew and come home late, very seldom do you think, praise God, I'm so glad that they're late. I'm sure they're helping a little old lady across the street. You know, I'm glad, you know, I'm glad that this is going well. No, we have a range of emotions from, from fear of what might happen to them to anger that they've disregarded curfew, all of these things, none of which are positive. That's not how our minds work. Add to, the fact, uh, add to that fact the reality that we have an enemy who is actively seeking to deal you a fatal blow in the battlefield of your mind. So if he can deal you a head wound, if he can get to your thoughts, to get you thinking things that are not true, then your feelings will not line up with what is real. And you'll see what seems real as if it is real. And that is very often not the case. But the more I align my thinking with truth, 
the more my feelings will begin to align with reality. Therefore, faith, as we discussed last week, and the choice to protect our heads by taking our thoughts captive are closely related. Again, our core reality, the devil cannot get into my head when my confidence is in Christ. So let's look at the verse. First, he starts out with the word take. There is an implication here. There is an activity. We have a choice. This is something we have to do. As with all of this, as we're putting on the armor, there is a command here. It's an exhortation, but understand it is absolutely an imperative. Do this. You have an option. You have a choice. We'll get a little bit into that more later, but recognize this part. We are saved by grace, but we are protected by knowledge. We are saved by grace, but we are protected by knowledge. Hopefully as we go, that will develop for you. So I won't spend time on it now. Notice the second part. Salvation comes from God. But we must choose to remember who we are in Christ. Salvation comes from God, but we must choose to remember who we are in Christ. Just a few chapters back in Ephesians 2, Paul said, It is by grace that you're saved. It's by grace that you're saved. Now, it doesn't take a whole lot of Bible knowledge to understand the nature of grace. If we recognize the meaning of the word, grace is that thing that we receive that we did not deserve, the good blessings that come to us that we did not deserve. We have many words in the English language derived from the Latin for this, including gratitude, thankfulness for that which we have received that we did not deserve. God's unmerited favor, His grace, is how we are saved. God is not compelled by any outside external force to save us. There's no contract that says, if I do this, then God must save me. That God must defend me. That God must give me those things that I ask for. God acts out of His goodness, His grace. Salvation comes from God. But we must choose to remember who we are in Christ. We're saved by His grace, but we're protected by knowledge. This is central to the whole picture of what Paul's communicating to the Ephesians in this letter. As he lays out in the first several chapters, the first three chapters specifically, what it means to be in Christ. He's talking about what it means to actually be, as we would term it, saved. To be literally a Christian, a Christ follower, to belong to God's family. He describes it. He tells us what it is. He tells us what it means that we've been blessed in the heavenly realms with every blessing in Christ, that we've been adopted. God has chosen us and made us His own and given us the full standing as if we were His own begotten children like Jesus Himself. In other words, when we are in Christ, He's united us to Christ, and we have the full spiritual standing of Jesus Himself. What is spiritually true of Christ 
is spiritually true of those who are in Christ. This is a huge emphasis for Paul in the first three chapters. It's our identity, the change in our nature. And because of that change in our nature, that change in identity, he then lays out in the next three chapters where we are now, the implications of that identity for our daily living and the choices we make. So the salvation that comes from God, we then act on by our choices. Never forget that while God has settled my destiny to be made perfectly like Christ, my choices nonetheless determine my destiny on earth. We're saved by grace, we're protected by knowledge. Salvation comes from God, but we must choose to remember who we are in Christ. Take the helmet. The helmet. Notice this, the head controls everything. The head controls everything. Our brain is the control center of our body. We cannot do with our hand what we have not first thought, generally unconsciously, in our brain. If our brain doesn't function, our lungs and heart don't function. Right? Our heart doesn't pump the blood. Our lungs don't breathe. Our pancreas doesn't pancreate. You know. We need the, the control center for things to work. The same thing is true of us spiritually. Notice this. If the devil can get into my head, he can debilitate me. If the devil can get into my head, he can debilitate me. Now, the enemy can't take what God has given. This is absolutely indisputable. There is nothing that the devil can do to you, period, when God says no. He is our invincible champion, our strong defender, and no one can come against God's people unless God says this is the right thing for now. Therefore, <clears throat> we, we can know and we can trust, as Paul writes in Romans 8.39, that there is absolutely nothing in heaven and on earth that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. However, since my thoughts control my behavior, if the devil can influence my thinking, he can coerce me into living as if I were not saved. He can't affect my salvation. He can't keep me from God. He can't take me out of God's hand. The devil's whole body and all of his minions are not stronger than the hand of God. But what he can do is to influence my thinking so that I live as if I were not saved at all. It doesn't negate my salvation which I did not achieve and cannot lose, but it can ruin my daily living the way a head wound can debilitate me physically. He can't kill me. He can't send me to hell. The devil can't drag anybody to hell. Either you go there by your own choice, by not believing in Jesus Christ, that is the destiny of every person without Christ, or you go to heaven because God has snatched you from the stupidity of sin. And therefore, the devil can't take you away from him. So in Christ, you have nothing to fear. 
This is a reality. However, my choices determine my destiny inasmuch as the things I choose to think and believe determine the way I live my life, handle adversity, treat other people, and so on. My feelings, if I let them control me, will then influence my thinking. Feelings are not meant to drive. Feelings are not a choice. You feel lots of things. If I come up and slap you in the face, it's going to hurt whether you want it to or not. That's reality. I put my hand in a fire, I'm going to feel the heat, and it's going to hurt. If I spill boiling water on myself, I can't say, hmm, that's good, I didn't feel anything. Right? No matter what they say in the martial arts movies, it's not how it works. I feel what I feel, but I do choose how I respond to that feeling. That's the rational thought part. So the feelings come, and then I choose whether or not to acknowledge that feeling as a dominant force in my life. I get to choose my thoughts. Paul refers to that as taking our thoughts captive, forcing them to obey Christ. I can do nothing to unsettle the eternal destiny that God has settled for me. But my choices in this life, especially where I choose to focus my thoughts, can certainly unsettle my life on earth. I need to protect my head from the devil's lies or I will sustain debilitating mental wounds that will decimate my ability to live the victorious Christian life. Confidence in Christ as my invincible rescuer keeps the devil out of my head. If the devil can get into my head, he can debilitate me. Take the helmet. Specifically, he says, Take the helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. Now, since our eternal salvation from sin is a settled matter in Christ, and it's an irrevocable gift of His grace, God doesn't take back what He has given. When God makes a covenant, God keeps His covenant even when we break it. The Old Testament is filled with examples of this, specifically so that we will understand that we cannot lose our salvation. It is a settled matter in Christ. So if that's true, then it seems somewhat obvious that Paul can't here be talking about this helmet as our salvation itself. I think for a long time I kind of thought he was. But he's talking about something that we need to take up. That we, we might not have it on and we need to have it on. But if we're in Christ, we are always saved. Amen? There's no change to that. The devil can't take me out of God's hand. Even if I stumble and fall, God does not let go. I've used the example before and I'll use it a thousand more times before I die, I'm sure. If my children, whom I love do something wrong, I discipline them. Right? Because I love them. But they don't stop being my children. No matter how hard a stand I have to take, that relationship is unchanged. The fellowship, however, may be strained. 
The fellowship may even be broken, but my relationship to my children does not change. My son is my son, my daughter is my daughter, even when they're not living right. Now, if that is true of our salvation, that it's not something that comes and goes, then why in the world would Paul say, take the helmet of salvation? It doesn't appear that he's talking about that. Rather, since it's something we must take up and put on in order to keep the enemy from our head, this helmet is referring to the sure and certain hope of salvation in Christ. Turn, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you're in Ephesians, you're just going to turn to the right a little bit. Pages are skinny. We're going to jump over uh, Philippians and Colossians. There is nothing more exciting and energizing in my week than hearing those pages turn as you're searching the Scriptures. Now, we're going to be looking at uh, verse 8, but I'm going to start a little bit ahead of that with verse 4. Actually, just for fun, I'm going to start with verse 1 because it's not in, in my schedule here, but I like it, so here's what we're going to do. 5 verse 1, now brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, talking about when the Lord's going to return and so on. We don't need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Stop. So the reason I want to make sure that we see this is because we spend a lot of time in the turmoil of our world getting all worked up about headlines. Oh, it's the end times. Oh, it's the end times. Yes, it's been the end times since Jesus ascended to heaven. That's reality, right? So for 2,000 years, we've been talking about Christ's imminent return, and that is real. That is true, and it is imminent. And the greater reality is that with the Lord, days like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is like a day. He's not waiting a bit, but he's patient with us. I want you to understand that the devil will use the headlines and these dark days to attack your mind to attack your head, to get you to feel like, oh no, everything is falling apart. The Lord has never for one second been out of control. There has never been a time since He created all things that God was less than perfectly sovereign. Now, if we want to think deeply, and we should, that raises a lot of questions. Now is not the time for us to wrestle with all of those but we do want to recognize that if God is God, then what God chooses to do is innately good. And the things that are hard and scary don't need to be as hard and scary when we remember that God is good all the time. And what? All the time God is good. In the midst of our darkness, in the midst of horrible headlines and upheaval in the Middle East and the Antichrist coming. And even now, as John said, many Antichrists have come. With all of these things and pandemics and hurricanes and earthquakes, God is not even one iota less in control than He will be on the day of consummation. 
With that in mind, we pick up with verse 4. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Meaning here, mindful, aware, awake, focused, alert. Putting on faith and love as a breastplate. And the hope of salvation as a helmet. Let me read that again. The hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. I want to point out here that it does not seem, it does not seem that when He says uh, that we're not appointed to suffer wrath, that he is talking about the great tribulation here. Okay, Now, that, that's another issue that just doesn't seem to be, to be what he has in mind here. I think that's true, that we're not appointed to suffer that wrath. But here what he's talking about is the wrath of God. We have been delivered from God's wrath against sinners because we have been delivered by sin in Christ. If we are in Christ... There is no wrath left for us because it fell on Him. So there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now, notice here when he says the hope of salvation. This is our helmet that we are to put on. Same guy writing it. I think he has the same thing in mind. So as we look back at Ephesians chapter 6, when he says the helmet of salvation, that appears to be the thought that he has. There's one other place these are the only three places that I know of in Scripture where this helmet of salvation is referred to. The other places is in Isaiah 59, which we'll look at in a little bit. And in each of these, there is a specific use that the author has in mind. It doesn't matter what I think or what you think. It matters what the person who wrote it thought. Because that's what God was thinking. That's what God gave to them. So here, as we are moving forward with this, we recognize that this helmet that he's referring to is the sure and certain hope of salvation. Remember, of course, that when we're talking about biblical hope, the Greek term here echoes the Hebrew term in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, it's always this, this way. And in the New Testament, it's almost always this way with a couple of exceptions. That we are talking not about a, a desire, a wishful thought, but a settled matter that has not yet been achieved or or revealed so when we have a sure and certain hope of resurrection we know that there is a resurrection to come god has said it we count on it it just hasn't happened yet right i if i'm if let's pretend for a moment we're not in the streaming world but we're back in the day when people watched primetime television live as it happened and you didn't have to have a dvr to record it and if i'm going to watch that great 80s show, Miami Vice, appointment television. Unfortunately, it sometimes ran into football games, but I digress. And it came on at a particular time, and I knew it came on at that time. I didn't sit around thinking, gosh, I 
I really hope Miami Vice comes on at 8 o'clock tonight like it did last week. No, it's scheduled. It's settled. It's done. And so my hope for that show to come on is not a wishful desire, but a certainty that I eagerly anticipate but has not yet been realized. In the same way, when we're talking about our hope of salvation, it's not, boy, I sure hope God saves me. It is the knowledge that God saves, that Jesus Christ has already conquered, is now conquering, and will ultimately and forever conquer. And those who are united to Him overcome because He is the overcomer. Not, man, I sure hope I'm good enough. It's by grace you're saved. You don't earn it, so you can't unearn it. It's a matter of remembering that our safety, protection, and deliverance, both now and in the future, depend on the Lord, not on us. He is our salvation. Therefore, our hope, our confidence is in Christ alone. We can rest securely in Him. This is why our memory verse for today, Psalm 62.1 says, Truly, my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. My soul finds rest in the certainty that when God saves, you are saved. Period. There's no maybe in God. My salvation comes from Him, not my works, not my righteousness, not my ability to hold on and to be firm in my faith. It doesn't come from there. Now I need to. And I should, and it gives me the ability to. My faith is a gift from God. And I need to make choices to protect my head from the devil's attacks. But what I need to do is not hope that I'm good enough to be saved, but rest in the reality that God is strong enough to always save without fail. That's why in the rest of Psalm 62, as I read for you earlier, You see the choices, I will, telling my soul to remember these things. Throughout the Psalms, David, as he cries out in anguish, why is this happening to me? How long will you assault me? You're going to just, you're going to knock me over in my weakness? And he has some self-talk that goes on throughout the Psalms as he says, find your hope in him. He says it to the people, but he says it to his own soul. Oh, my soul, hope in the Lord. Rest in Him, because God is undeniable. God is undefeatable. Our defender cannot be defeated. Therefore, we do not have to worry or fear. That's the nature of the salvation we're talking about. All right, moving on. Salvation is the epitome of God's character, the pinnacle of His plan, the desire of His heart, and the display of His glory. Salvation is the epitome of God's character, the pinnacle of His plan, the desire of His heart, and the display of His glory. I'm going to do this much more quickly than I would like to because I'd like to spend a lot of time on each of these things, but then we wouldn't get home until supper time and you would be upset with me. So 
we're going to trust that the Lord will guide you through this. Salvation is the epitome of God's character, the pinnacle of His plan, the desire of His heart, and the display of His glory. Much of this is embodied in Isaiah 59. Turn there with me if you would. From Ephesians, we're going back to the left. A good chunk this time. If you go to the middle of your Bible, you'll probably find the Psalms. Then you can move to the right a little bit from there to find Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the larger books in the Old Testament, which is why these books are called the major prophets, because they wrote more. Right? Isaiah 59, toward the end of the book. Now, in this particular passage, Israel demonstrates that even those who are set apart for God are internally corrupt, depraved, and unable, not to mention unwilling, to save themselves from the ravages of sin. So God intervenes to save His people Himself. The context makes clear that the author is not referring to an external salvation that happens to the divine champion, but the salvation he achieves on behalf of his people. Let's read the text. Um, starting with verse 1, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. This anthropomorphism, this attributing to God human characteristics, we recognize he doesn't have an arm. This is a metaphor for his saving ability, his strength. The arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. He hears the faintest cry. Right? He, he listens, and he'll save us by and by. But, he says in verse 2, your iniquities have separated you from God, speaking to Israel. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken falsely, your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. And he goes on to embellish this thought that God's own people are living sinful lives. The nation of Israel has turned away from God. Far too often, as I look at the church at large, we've done the same thing. Israel turned from God as they began to think like the rest of the nations, like the world. And they did, as the book of Judges says, what was right in their own eyes. Let your conscience be your guide, says Jiminy Cricket except for what happens when we don't follow the compass of God's Word, the absolute standard, the perfect plumb line of God's divinely revealed, inspired Scriptures. Our conscience is corrupted by our sinfulness. So we do what we think is right, and very often we let the end justify the means, and God says no. Israel did that. Far too often the church does that. We run away from truth and hard words and holiness because we think that God's love stands apart from His holiness 
and it does not, and it cannot. Truth and love go hand in hand like two sides of the same coin. If you do not have God's love, you do not have God's truth. No truth that fails to lead to love comes from God. At the same time, if you do not have God's truth, you do not have God's love. No love that fails to steer us back to truth and originates from truth comes from God. He is telling the people here that his own people are failing to do what is right. They're not even looking for it. Jump ahead to verse 15. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. The kings of Israel were there to intervene, to lead the people in following God, and they failed. The priests were to represent the people before God, but they themselves were corrupted. Prophets who spoke lies rather than speaking the word of God. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. God stepped in to save his people. And his own righteousness sustained him. Notice this next verse. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord. From the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. Now, as we read this, obviously you're catching the helmet of salvation phrase. Clearly, Paul has this passage in his mind as he is referring to the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. And yet, there seems to be a very different meaning here. Because God doesn't need to remind himself of truth to protect his head. So the divine warrior in picture here as God is doing the salvation for us. This helmet that he puts on as described is the salvation that he has achieved for his people. So in this particular reference, it's less of a protective gear item and more of a crown of glory. It's the epitome of God's character. It's the pinnacle of his plan It was always his plan to deliver Israel. It was always his plan to send the Messiah to save his people from their sins. Even as early as Genesis 3, we see him refer to that serpent crusher who would come to defeat the enemy. Moreover, it is the desire of his heart and the display of his glory. Everything we see in the pictures here in Isaiah involve a couple of different things. The warrior God who comes and brings judgment against the wicked and the warrior God referred to as the Prince of Peace 
who in bringing judgment against the wicked delivers his people. Secondly, we see the picture of the loving, compassionate God who reaches out to his people and is gentle like a lamb. The Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, both in the person of the Son. There is glory in this. It is the plan of God. It is endemic to who He is. He saves because He is a Savior. He doesn't owe us anything. But it is His delight and His desire. With all this passage here in mind, the helmet in view does not appear to be the symbol of protection as much as a sort of crown of glory. There's a passage that we, don't, uh, that we don't think about very often in a book that some of you don't even know exists. So we're going to look at Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3. Turn to the left a little. The, the minor prophets are smaller books, so they get a little skinnier. If you get to Matthew, Mark, and John, you went a little bit too far. So you're going to find the book of Zephaniah. interesting as you look at Zephaniah it immediately follows Habakkuk and Habakkuk is a lament uh, as God is describing to the prophet the judgment that he will bring but this passage that we're going to read in Zephaniah speaks of the joy of the Lord not the joy of the Lord that that we have in God but God's joy as he delights in saving his people Zephaniah chapter 3 starting with verse 14. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will, give, I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. This is a picture of God rejoicing, delighting in His bride as He rescues her. He delivers her. It is God's joy, His desire and pleasure to save His people. A couple of references you might write down. Luke 15.10 tells us that heaven rejoices when a sinner repents. It is God's joy. The angels throw a party when someone turns from their way to Christ. Isaiah 62, 3-5 we read earlier, we see the picture that God delights in His bride whom he has rescued. Salvation is the epitome of God's character, the pinnacle of his plan, the desire of his heart, and the display of his glory. 
Paul has established throughout the book of Ephesians that God's glory is displayed in the church, the temple built of the living stones of believers who have been saved from their sins. Notice this. Those who are in Christ have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved. We've got three tenses here. Three tenses of salvation. Those who are in Christ have been saved in the past. It's already happened. Are being saved, going on right now in the present, and will be saved. The ultimate salvation is yet to come. You can jot these three things down. We won't take a lot of time, but just to to let you see them. First word you want to write down is justification. Justification is being made right with God, being justified like you might justify a margin, being declared to be righteous. Justification is being saved from the penalty of sin. We have been saved when we are in Christ in that He has already canceled sin. He took the penalty for us, and by faith we are justified. Secondly, sanctification. Sanctification. Sanctification is being saved from the power of sin. It has a a few different meanings. One is being set apart for God. The second is being increasingly conformed to the likeness of God in Christ. God is working in us right now to make us more like Christ. We see the picture of this in Galatians 5 in the comparison of walking according to the Spirit rather than gratifying the desires of the flesh. We see the acts of the sinful nature, the flesh, as pretty obvious. And we have a list of sins there that's by no means exhaustive, but gives us a picture. And then in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, we see the contrast of the fruit of the Spirit, what God is producing in us that comes out from us because of His Spirit that dwells within us. He is changing us from the inside out. That is our sanctification as we increasingly, progressively become more like Him. Lastly, recognizing that those who are in Christ have been saved, justification, are being saved in sanctification, and will be saved. This is our glorification. Glorification. When Christ returns, we will be saved from the presence of sin. Sin will be no more. This is our final salvation, the crown of victorious glory that is reserved for us when Christ returns. Let's get to some New Testament passages, and we'll we'll just hit a few of them because I I have a big list and we don't want to do all of them. But man, I want you to see them. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Past Ephesians, not quite getting to Revelation. It's after Hebrews and James. We'll stay in the New Testament as we're looking at these. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look specifically at verses 4 and 5, but let's start with 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's our justification. 
and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This is yet to come. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He has saved you from sin. He is saving and preserving you right now, and He will deliver this inheritance as He brings you to that final place. Flip back to Colossians chapter 3, just after the book of Ephesians, a couple of pages. Colossians chapter 3. I really want to take you to Philippians. You can read it on your own time, but man, there's some good stuff there. Colossians chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Since then you've been raised with Christ. He's making the same point in Colossians in the first couple of chapters that he's making in the first three chapters of Ephesians. You are in Christ, therefore where Christ is, you are. What is true of Christ is true of you. You were buried with Him by faith through your baptism as you identified with Christ and you were raised to a new life in Him. Now he says, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Notice the glorification element here. When Christ, who is your life, appears, we are waiting for His imminent return, then you also will appear with Him in glory. There is a reward that is waiting for us in glory. Turn the page, just a couple, to 2 Thessalonians. We'll jump over 1 Thessalonians to 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Speaking of what comes at the end times. I want to read more, but let's just read verses 9 and 10. You can read the rest for yourselves. They, the wicked, those who are, who are outside of Christ and opposed to God, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might on the day, on the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people. On the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. The glory of Christ in His coming is the glory of His people, the church. Turn back a few pages to 1 Corinthians 15. Past Galatians and Ephesians. There are two Corinthian letters. We're going to the first. In Paul's great treatise on the resurrection of the body, the resurrection of Christ, and the resurrection of those who are in Christ to come later, he speaks of our victory this is a passage I love to read at, at funerals, at the interment of a Christian, because this is the power of the hope of our salvation. Not what we have already received, but what we are yet to receive, our final victory, starting with verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. In other words, we won't all die. It's a euphemism. But we will all be changed 
in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There is a glorification to come, a final salvation, a reward for those who are in Christ. This is our hope, our sure and certain expectation of that which we do not yet see. We have been saved by His death and resurrection. We are being sanctified now. We are being saved, preserved, held, because the one who started this in us is faithful and will not let us go, but will complete what he began. And the day is coming when all of the darkness will fall away. All of the wickedness will be judged and slain, and sin will be no more, and those who are in him will be delivered. Since nothing can defeat our defender, no harm can come to us that he does not ordain. Since nothing can defeat our defender, no harm can come to us that he does not ordain. Notice this. Painful things that God ordains are for our good and his glory. Painful things that God ordains are for our good and His glory. Can we all agree that God is invincible? Say amen if it's true. All right, the reality is God cannot be defeated. And if He is our defender, which is His promise, that He will stand for His people, that He will protect us, then we can recognize that there is no thing that can come into our lives that our defender can't defend us from and if he loves us and wants to defend us then we need to recognize that there is no thing that can come into our lives that he does not wish to desire to defend us from and as job realized there is nothing that can thwart god's plans if he desires it he does it period therefore if any hard thing comes into our lives it's not that God fell asleep. It's not that the devil was stronger than him and overcame it. It's not that your sinfulness is bigger than God's desire and ability to defend you, to uphold you, to preserve you. It's that God has ordained that thing for this moment, for this time. As terrible as it seems, we don't see what he sees. Therefore, the painful things that he allows into our lives must by definition be the best possible thing that could happen. Now, in my humanness, I can't understand that. So when you say, how could a good God let this happen? Listen, I don't know, because I'm not a good God. I would be a terrible God. My understanding is limited. His is infinite. 
That which God allows to happen, God ordains to happen. That which God ordains to happen is ultimately, regardless of the horrific nature of it in the moment, is ultimately for our good and ultimately for His glory. The helmet of salvation consists in knowing that God is the biggest and He's on my side to steal from VeggieTales. My status as His fully adopted child in Christ means that I can rest in the knowledge that He is my perfect defender and invincible champion. He is my Savior who loves me and fights for me. This is why John writes that perfect love drives out fear when we know that the Omnipotent One is on our side. There's no place for fear. With that in mind, I can know for sure that no harm can befall me that has not already been sifted through the filter of His perfect will. If He gave His Son for His enemies, how much more does He take care of His children? I protect my mind against the enemy's attacks when I remind myself of these truths. Quick tour real quick. Turn to Romans 5. While you're turning to Romans 5, I want to draw your mind to James chapter 1. And in James chapter 1, the the half-brother of Christ tells us that we are to consider it pure joy whenever we face trials of many kinds because the testing of our faith develops perseverance. Read what Paul writes to the Roman church in Romans 5. Starting with verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we've been set right with God by trusting in the work of Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. That's the the glorification that is yet to come. We know that there is a reward, and we are just reveling in the sure and certain anticipation of the future. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, it doesn't disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, unable to defend ourselves, to save ourselves, or even to choose Christ, while we were still powerless, hmm. I got excited and lost my place. Uh, You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Not for the good folks, not for the faithful ones, not for the holy ones. He died for the ungodly, still living as his enemies. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved 
from God's wrath through him. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Turn a couple of pages to chapter 8. And with this, we'll wrap it up. I want to read so much of this, but we'll just read a familiar passage starting with, <clears throat> excuse me, um, starting with verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. That which is yet to come, as if it already had taken place. So certain is the glory that is ours in Christ. Verse 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? In other words, if he did this for us when we were his enemies, how could we possibly think he would let us down now? Our expectations may lead us astray. Our impatience may lead us astray. The devil will attack our minds with shame and guilt and doubt and try to hammer us into submission so that if he can deal us enough of a blow to the head to debilitate us, that he can't take us out of God's hand. But if we live as spiritual invalids, harming and paralyzing our fellowship with God, it's the next best thing for him. But if God loved us so much, even when we were his enemies, that he gave up his son for us, he did not spare Christ, how can we imagine that anything that comes into our lives has escaped his notice or is somehow bad for us? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. We are going to face evil days trouble, enemies. And yet the truth of God as our defender remains. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. 
while we have no reason to fear. And these passages make it abundantly clear that we have no valid reason to fear. That does not mean that we will not fear because we are weak-willed and failing. The Lord knows that we're of dust. He recognizes our weakness. That's why we have to put on this helmet. We're going to have fear and doubts. So we put the helmet of salvation on, this hope, this sure and certain hope that God will defend us, will stand by us, will deliver us, because the enemy will attack our head with blows of fear, shame, and doubt. But the sure and certain hope of real salvation by an invincible Savior renders such attacks powerless. Certainty that Christ is our invincible Savior protects us from fatal doubt. The devil cannot get into my head when my confidence is in Christ. If my confidence is in other people, man, he can get into my head. If my confidence is in myself, my feelings, my ability to understand, oh boy, can he get into my head. If my confidence is in building the kingdom today and creating a better world through, through all the different means that we might have, education, wealth, all of these things, these are earthbound. And man, can the devil get into my head when things don't turn out like I think they should. If I believe that the will of God is for me to be happy, happy, happy all the time, Man, can the devil get in my head. Because nobody is happy, happy, happy all the time. Sometimes the bigger the smile, the deeper the scars. However, I can rest in knowing that God does not change. And the devil cannot get into my head when my confidence is not in any of those things, but in Christ Himself. Therefore I can say with the psalmist, truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. Let's pray. Father God, as we read Your Word, I want to ask in the name of Jesus that you would protect us from any outside voices that would seek to deceive, distract, or discourage us. Father, take those things away from us. We want to hear only you. At the same time, Lord, I pray that you would protect us from human opinion, that my words would not have nearly as much weight in our hearts as your word that we might never fall into error by adding to or taking away from the, the text of your word. And Father, we thank you. We adore you. We worship you for who you are. That salvation comes from you because it is your character to save your people. Therefore, our hope, our trust is in you. Lord, help us to do that, to remind ourselves of that reality, to refocus our minds on your truth over and over and over again, 
and so much more so as it gets harder and darker. Lord, fears and doubts assail. We know this is regular for us and we, we need you. Remind us of how much. Use the painful things, the dark things, the enemies, the, the places we feel like we're failing. Even our sin, Lord, use it to remind us of how desperately we need you every hour. Lord, there is no other voice, no matter how tender, that can afford us the peace that we find in you. There is no other champion who can stand for us, nor can we stand for ourselves. So help us to find our rest in you, Lord as we own our dependence on you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.